So I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. Thank you for joining us. Our topic today is the pandemic of hate. If you're joining us uh, this week, this is our second podcast. So thank you for all of you who are returning. And for those of you that are new, uh, we just want to welcome you and thank you. Um, You might want to know, well, what in the world is Love First about? We are the North Atlanta Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are a Love First family. And so we want to take a few moments and do a little housekeeping uh, for the North Atlanta Church. And so if you just want to skip ahead to the podcast a few minutes, uh, just go ahead and skip ahead. You'll hear the music, and that's where the podcast will begin. But on the other hand, if you're in the Atlanta area and you don't have a church home yet and you're looking for one, we would welcome you to the family. And we would love to meet you and interact with you and get to know you. And if you're not in the Atlanta area, but you're looking for an online church experience, we want to say welcome. We're super thankful that you've tuned in. And you can get to know us better at lovefirst.org. And we'd encourage you to just check that out. And something that we shared last week is we'll be taking questions for the podcast. In fact, we'll answer a few at the end of this one. And so that's also an area where you can share a question and also uh, get to know us a little bit. So we'd love for you to do that. For the North Atlanta family, there's a couple of things happening. First of all, thank you very much for your flexibility and uh, trusting and adjusting as we go. And so a couple of things. On the Wednesday that this podcast drops tonight, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we are launching our first Facebook Live interactive, interactive recovery meeting being led by our recovery minister, Jasmine Turner. If you don't know Jasmine, she's absolutely amazing. She has a fantastic story, which includes her own long-term recovery. And so we'd like for you to uh, go online and go to Facebook and just search North Atlanta Anchor Ministry, and you'll find that page. And then you can join that meeting tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Oh, we also want you to know that every day, sometimes uh, during the night, I might want to put that out there, we are building out resources every day at lovefirst.org. These are for families with children of all ages, uh, small children. In fact, I talked to Jennifer Schroeder, our children's minister today, and she shared that she will be creating content for Cradle Roll. We're doing this for every age of child, and there's been a lot of fun on there. In fact, you can go to the North Atlanta Children's Ministry Facebook page and see a lot of the fun that families are having during this uh, time where everyone's at home, basically, right? Uh, We also want you to know that there are resources there for our student ministry, and we're so excited for the content that's being developed by uh, Kendra and Justin, our youth ministers, and their team, and that's going out every day. So we just want you to be aware of that, and you can find all of that again at lovefirst.org. There's opportunities there uh, for college age and young adult ministry, as well as discipleship resources for all ages. And bear in mind, if you were there yesterday, go back and check today because there will be more content and we're working hard on that every day. Well, what about Sunday? As you know, we'll still be meeting online and we're getting better at this. Now, last Sunday, we tried to go live with our service and it crashed. But that little hiccup didn't stop us because we were very quickly able to push it over to another platform 
and people enjoyed that together, but we got that remedy, we believe. So this Sunday at 9.30 Eastern time, you can go on lovefirst.org. You'll see a page there and you can click on join us live. And when you do, up in the top left corner of your screen, when you come into our virtual lobby, you're going to uh, come in and click on that uh, hamburger menu, those three lines stacked at the top left corner, and that'll give you an opportunity uh, to sign in. So where it says nickname, just put your name or your family name. And then under that, your email, under that, an easy to remember password, and then click sign in and you'll be in the virtual lobby. And before it crashed last week, it was so exciting. Over a hundred people in just a few minutes before it crashed. In fact, uh, the crash affected churches nationwide, but for us, over 100 people had already signed in and were enjoying talking and chatting with one another. What? Not only what a great experience, but think about this. How exciting will that be? How exciting will that be when we finally get to see each other face to face? Don't lose sight of that exciting vision. So, real quickly, for North Atlanta members, Think about the things that I've just mentioned, and you can find these updates at lovefirst.org. If you're in the Atlanta area and you're looking for a church, we want to connect with you, and we hope you'll connect with us. Uh, anywhere else you are in the world, if you're looking for an online church experience, we pray that you will join us, and we look forward to getting to know you. And so I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And now as we transition, I want us to think about the pandemic of hate. Now here in the studio, I've set up some dominoes and I want you to take a minute and just listen as the dominoes fall. Did you hear that? Okay, now, now stop because we're actually going to do it again. We're going to slow it down. And I just want you to listen as the dominoes fall. One last time, we're going to slow it down again. And I'm asking you to slow down and just listen as the dominoes fall. You see, there's a sense in which we're all like dominoes, like a game of dominoes. And it's somehow we're all connected, right? But we might want to ask how. Because you see, there's more than one way that dominoes are connected. So one way that's kind of a sensational way is you can go online and if, if you searched, you know, uh, most dominoes falling or the greatest number of dominoes falling, you'll see people that took weeks of their lives to set up hundreds of thousands of dominoes in some elaborate pattern. And we all, all have this anticipation that when they hit that first domino, 
then all of them will eventually fall. That they're all connected, right? You know, there's a sense in which that's a little bit what it feels like during this pandemic. The coronavirus and the disease which results, COVID-19, it can feel like that somehow we're just all kind of stacked up like dominoes, right? Maybe continent by continent, country by country, people by people, culture by culture, city by city, home by home, school by school, business by business, church by church, person by person, that eventually, inevitably, those dominoes are going to eventually fall in my life, and they're going to take everything from us. That the impact of those dominoes falling is at some point going to take my job, and for some of you, it already has, your income, your health care, your, your home, your health. And my guess is that many of you, like me, already have a friend or a loved one who already has tested positive for COVID-19 or might even be hospitalized or may have already died. You know, the truth is that there is a sense, and when it feels like that we're just dominoes and that there's no way to stop it. And when we feel like that, that it's, it's kind of coming for us, right? It's just coming for us. And it's kind of an inevitable situation that sometimes we fight back in different ways, right? So for some, they'll, they'll kind of still mock the disease or, or kind of make fun of it or, you know, act like everyone's overreacting. And they'll, they'll even, uh, uh, even maybe mock people or put them down for the uh, physical distancing and so on, right, as a way to push out of our minds the idea that this thing's coming for us or those we know or those we love. Another way that we deal with it might surprise us, it's through grief. This last week, Scott Baranato, who's the senior editor at Harvard Business Review, wrote an article titled, The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. I want to thank my friend David Scobie for forwarding that article to me. Because one of the points that Scott makes in his article is anticipatory grief. The part of what we're feeling is not just loss, but the sense of impending loss. Like even before we lose the actual tangible item, we're experiencing loss in advance because we fear that we're going to lose it. That's not that unusual, is it? You see, sometimes we only think of grief as following an event, but grief can even proceed. It's the fear and the sadness of the loss we anticipate. For some people, this drives us into a deep sense of sadness, fear, resentment, bitterness, maybe even anger. And somehow it feels like that somewhere back upstream, there is someone to blame for this. Someone made that first domino fall, right? And whoever made that first domino fall is at fault 
for everything that's happening and is going to happen. And we begin to search for it, not so much in a medical term or, or, or process, and not so much in research or even epidemiology, where we're just trying to track it back so that we can somehow analyze it and figure out the source to cure it. No, no. We're looking for someone to blame, not necessarily a way to cure. Because part of what we're feeling is someone did this to us. That's not new, is it? And that can have very negative repercussions, right? It's almost like that there's this, this mob mentality, right? Like, remember some famous biblical stories? Think about Moses, right? Moses is apparently this awesome leader, right? He's the leader of the Exodus. He liberates his people until they get stuck. And as soon as they get stuck, a mob begins to form because they want to kill him. Well, that's not the last time that happens, is it? Because think about the mob that gathered to lynch Jesus. Remember this? And the stories about Jesus are just going every which way. And it's Jesus' fault that this is happening to us. And that continues down through history, where we're looking for someone to point the finger out and say, you did this to us. We could say to our politicians, you did this to us. We could say to the media, you did this to us. But we could also look at a country, a culture, a people. And somehow they have some unique deficiency that, that they caused all this. And we begin to name it. We have a history of doing this where a virus is named according to a people. And then we begin to look at those people as the ones to blame for what's happening to us and all of our loss. And then that begins to perpetuate a kind of hatred and a kind of violence that lives itself out in actual circumstances where someone is attacked on a subway or someone is sprayed with mace or someone is beaten in a park because they're a certain ethnicity because they're the first domino. They represent what's going wrong. I remember six years ago, in January of 2014, our son and one of our sons and his wife were returning from their mission work overseas because they'd had a baby girl overseas, our first granddaughter. And she was coming to America, and we were flying in my parents and my wife's parents in order to meet their great-grandbaby. What a celebration. Everyone got into Atlanta, and oh, it was awesome. They were welcoming the new baby into the family. The celebration was great. We had a dinner at our house, and we have a family tradition that when anyone is being celebrated, the whole family sits around, and we all share what we admire about this person we're celebrating. And that night, we chose the two granddads, my dad and my wife's dad. And the next night, it would be the two grandmas, my mom and my wife's mom. But something happened. Because you see, when my dad arrived in Atlanta, my dad didn't know he was sick. And we didn't know he was sick 
we had that great celebration and shared how much he meant to us and how much Susan's dad meant to us. And then I got a call the next morning from my wife. They were going to be in town for a while. I'd gone to the office to take care of a couple of things. And she said, Don, your dad is sick. We're on our way to the hospital. And 13 days later, completely unexpected, he died. Now, I can look back on that. And I can think, well, did that nurse do their job? Or did that doctor do their job? Or was it the right hospital? Or why did we even have them come to Atlanta? How did the doctors miss this? Was the treatment correct? Is it my fault, right? Was I the domino that caused this? You see, whenever we're experiencing the pain like this, it can just feel like that somehow the world got stacked up against us and it was coming our way and someone started this. Someone did it in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his followers come upon a blind man. They even ask, well, whose fault is this? Who's to blame? Was it, did he have bad parents? Was he a bad guy? You see, it's normal. This is normal. In fact, if you haven't read Scott Baranato's article in Harvard Business Review, I'd encourage you to search for it. Again, the title is, The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. It's normal to feel these things. And that's one way to play dominoes. But you do realize there's another way to play dominoes, right? If you remember the original way, you know, the dominoes were not made originally for us to stack them up and knock one over and for all of them to fall down. That's not what dominoes were made for. We played dominoes all the time as a child, and I've still got sets of dominoes in my home that we play and enjoy. But if you look at a domino, if you look at the face of every domino, they have numbers or blank spaces on them, and the whole idea is connection. You see, it's still connection. It's just a different kind of connection, right? The idea of dominoes is the way you win the game is that you become imaginative about connecting. You become innovative about connecting. You study your own dominoes and all the possibilities. You study everyone else's dominoes and all the possibilities. And then you start looking for ways to connect, 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 connect. Not to knock someone down. Not an inevitability of being crushed under the weight of some, you know, uh, random act of, of, of history or that the whole world is stacked against me. No, 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 no. And in fact, it's not even a conspiracy. A conspiracy that someone meant to do this to us. You see, the second way of playing dominoes is figuring out how do we connect for good? That's what we want to address, is how do we connect for good. I mentioned that this is the Love First podcast, and this grows out of our Love First Church. But something else grew out of our Love First Church, and that's a book that I wrote a couple of years ago titled Love First, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late. Now, this book, published in 2017, addressing this is these issues, I want you to read 
what's on the back cover. Listen as I read what's on the back cover of the book. Now bear in mind, it was published in 2017. A terrible virus has spread across the planet and has turned the human race into bloodthirsty monsters. Mankind's only hope for survival is... Well, that was originally part of the tagline for the sci-fi thriller, I Am Legend. Remember, starring Will Smith? These lines describe the undercurrent and unrest and turbulence in our world. The virus we face is hate, an epidemic infecting social media, politics, neighborhoods, and homes, communities of believers which should be clinics of the cure are instead suspected of being primary, or primary carriers of the virus. But there is hope. Love is the only cure in it, for a sick and dying world, but not just any kind of love. Love first offers a clear-eyed assessment of the current love-hate crisis and a practical, doable strategy for how Christians can begin to truly love, especially those who do not love us in return. So this is the back cover of a book published 36 months ago that sounds like it was published yesterday. Because what we recognize is, is that through the coronavirus outbreak and the COVID-19 disease that follows, we have exposed another disease. This isn't the only disease we're facing. So how do we play dominoes in such a way that rather than just mowing people over, really actually just trying to figure out how will I survive and I hope others make it. We're actually looking for innovative, imaginative ways to connect in love. Now, something pretty fascinating is that in 1 John 4 and verse 19, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. So we learn love through the character of God, and then we discover that we're capable of that kind of love because of God. But I want us to talk for a moment about the pandemic of hate. What in the world is this thing called hate? Because truthfully, a lot of us think, well, I'm not a hater. I mean, I don't hate people. I may be frustrated with people, but I don't hate people. I may not like people, but I, I think I still love them. I'm, I'm not a hater, right? I'm not going around blaming this virus on a particular culture or a particular person. I didn't attack anyone in a park or a subway. I didn't, it, as far as I know, I've not participated in hate. So why a podcast about the pandemic of hate? Hmm. Well, I think Jesus can help us here a little bit. You see, there's a famous teaching of Jesus, and especially two Gospels help us reveal, help Jesus reveal to us how we understand hate, hate as a spectrum. So the first is this famous teaching in Luke chapter 14, and I'm just going to focus you for a moment on verse 26, where Jesus says, unless you hate, yes, hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your own self, you can't be my disciple. You have to, 
you have to admit that's got to be troubling or a little bit of a tripwire, right? Can you imagine uh, one of your neighbors during all of this just asked you, man, how do you have hope or how are you coping? And you say, you know what? man, I, I just committed to being a follower of Jesus and Jesus is leading me or Jesus is leading me and my family, me and how I uh, lead my company, uh, or whatever it is, Jesus is leading me through this. And someone says, can I ask you a question? And you're like, well, sure. They say, about Jesus? You're like, yeah. And they say, well, then why did Jesus tell us to hate people? You might think, uh, or you might scramble a little bit, or you might, well, he did actually say that. He did say that. But here's the key that unlocks the meaning of hate. If you read this same story in the gospel of Matthew, I'll direct you to Matthew 10 and verse 37. Matthew, also a follower of Jesus, writes it this way, unless you love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, your own life, you can't be my disciple. You say, well, what was Matthew doing? Trying to clean up Luke's mess? You know, Matthew saw what Luke wrote and was like, yikes, man, that's not going to go over well, the whole hate thing. So we got to modify this a little bit and somehow maybe pull it out of the ditch. Well, no, you don't need to do that at all because you see in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word hate is a spectrum. It doesn't, it isn't limited to the way that we often think of hate today. We add emotional weight to when we talk about hate. We add emphasis when we talk about hate. Let me illustrate. If someone asks you, do you want a particular kind of ice cream? And you're like, ooh, yeah, I hate that. Well, see, there's this visceral reaction, right? But the same thing can be true when someone speaks about a person or a people group that creates a visceral reaction. We can say, I hate that guy. I hate that woman. I hate those people. I hate that country right? And it has all this emotional, visceral weight. But not completely foreign to the English language, hate also has a spectrum here, which is revealed in Greek and Hebrew. A way to think about it would be this. The Greek word for hate, uh, miseo, could be translated um, in some instances, neglect by degree. Neglect by degree. Meaning, there's not an emotional reaction. It's not a visceral reaction. In fact, for Jesus to say, unless you prioritize your relationship with me to such a point that you would neglect by degree, some other people in your life, that doesn't mean I have to dislike them. In fact, I can love them with all my heart. But what Jesus is articulating is, well, someone, what if someone that you love very much influences you 
to do something that's wrong or influences you in racism, classism, genderism, sexism, someone in your life that you love very much that influences you to look for scapegoats in this crisis, someone to blame for this crisis. And you hear this whisper of the Spirit of God that says, peace, perfect peace. Bring shalom. Bring love first, not judgment first. Bring love first, not blame first. Put love first, not fault first. Well, see, Jesus would say, in that choice, as you neglected in that case their influence, their opinion by a level of degree, there's a sense in which, listen carefully, you chose him and you hated them. You see, well, that causes a cognitive dissonance in us because of the way we use the word hate. This is another problem when we're reading God's, or the Apostle Paul's description of God choosing Jacob over Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But we see the evidence of God's love in Esau's life. In fact, it's God's love that melts Esau's heart that later on in life, it's Esau that leads the reconciliation with Jacob, not Jacob leading the reconciliation with Esau. So God loved Esau. In that case, the word hate is being used as a way to describe the choosing of one and the not choosing of another. Ah, so maybe we are haters. Maybe we all could risk a negative application of this where we're neglecting others by degree. So maybe the reality is, is that when I go to the store and I get there early and I find out that there is gold on the toilet paper aisle and I'm panning for gold and I fill my cart and I'm hoping to sneak up so that the manager doesn't get there before I do the self-checkout and buy more toilet paper that I'm supposed to buy, right? And then I realize, well, you know, I got here early, right? The early bird gets the worm, right? The, the early shopper gets the toilet paper, right? And I'm not even thinking about the caregiver that had to get someone to come and stay the night with their disabled family member or their elderly or sick family member so that someone could stay there at the house and watch them where one, that one person gets out of bed after very little sleep, gets dressed, gets to the store, but has, has struggled getting out the door for the care of their loved ones, so they're a little bit late and they got there right behind the toilet paper shopper, only to find that there was none left. And the person now with a trunk load of toilet paper, they don't drive out of the parking lot thinking themselves as a hater, right? They didn't think of themselves someone to blame or it wasn't my fault. You know, we needed toilet paper and I got there early. Yes, you did. And in a negative sense, you neglected by degree the person who has circumstances different than yours and you took no care or concern. So yes, in a very pragmatic and practical sense, you and I can inadvertently be haters. It's like playing the game of dominoes where you just kind of feel like that it's inevitable that that's coming. 
And somehow I've got to shelter myself and shelter those I love. And if nobody else makes it, I, I, I just don't know what to say. I, I can't take care of everybody. Rather than thinking of imaginative ways, innovative ways to connect. So there's another way that the game is played, right? I want us to take a moment and think about Scripture. In the book of Esther, we have quite a story. It's one of the most profound stories of the Bible. We have this young woman of God that just towers above her contemporaries as a person who we would put in the, the hall of fame of the faithful, this young lady, Esther. But Esther's whole story turns on a virus the virus of hate. And in this case, there is a conspirator. His name is Haman. He does intend to infect the population of the Persians with hate and so that the disease would manifest itself in the extermination of the Jews. And this is for real. It is a pandemic that goes out throughout the empire. Read the book of Esther and reacquaint yourself with it province by province, uh, 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 provincial leader by provincial leader, city by city, farm by farm. The intent is that the pandemic would wipe these people out. Esther is called upon by her cousin, her older cousin, Mordecai, to do something. Mordecai, who raised her because she was orphaned, her parents both died, Mordecai raised this young lady, and now he calls on this person he loves more than his own next breath to do something, to step in and help arrest the pandemic of hate, to stop it. But Esther replies to Mordecai, all the king's officials and even the people out in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in the inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. The king hasn't called on me to come to him for a month. Esther says, uh, hold up a minute. I did not put these dominoes in motion, and it is not up to me to be one of the dominoes that gets crushed. I'm telling you, Mordecai, you're on the outside of the palace. I know life on the inside of the palace. And in here, it might look pretty from the outside, but there's a lot of danger on the inside. And one of the dangers is you can die for what you're asking me to do. Now, as we tell this story, right, primarily we focus on the what we might call the conversion of Esther, right? Because Mordecai replies, uh, to Esther. Now, don't think for a moment that because you're inside the palace that you'll escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at this time, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Here's the famous phrase, right? Ready? Say it with me. Who knows? But for such a time as this, you were made queen. Now, we know that phrase, right? 
And there's a lot of exciting, important things in that verse. Number one, the promise that, that Mordecai makes that deliverance and relief will come. Aren't you glad to know that in every pandemic throughout history, deliverance and relief have come? Isn't that fantastic? To know that deliverance and relief will come. That already all over the world, people are figuring out a new way to play dominoes. Researchers, countries, epidemiologists, virologists, biostatisticians, from the private sector to the public sector, to the scholastic center centers, to the research centers, they are all playing dominoes. They're figuring out how to connect with one another. It's crazy, but even in our government centers, People are rediscovering there's more than one way to play dominoes. Now, it's a little embarrassing when you watch them do it in real life because sometimes they play dominoes by yelling at each other. But what happens after hours when the cameras are off is they realize it's going to take us all to save us. If relief and deliverance are going to come, it's going to come from above. It's going to come when people... Start learning to play the game as God intended. You see, when God created the world, the world was created for connection. Imaginative, innovative connection. It wasn't until sin entered the world that corruption and disruption and destruction came. But even the prophets of old Describe a world where people know how to be restored to the connections that were intended, that somehow a lion and a lamb will lie down together in harmony, that what we call shalom will be restored. This is God's will. When Jesus Christ came to earth, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that on the cross, in his own flesh, he birthed a new humanity. And in Revelation chapter 7, it tells us that as God restores all creation, that someday every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be connected around the throne of God. God is the connecting force. So as God's love prevails, deliverance and relief do come and will come. Isn't that a great promise? But take one more moment with me in the Esther story. Because you realize it's not just Esther that had to be converted. It's also Mordecai. You see, when Esther was a little girl, she was orphaned. And this loving cousin takes her in. And he realizes how vulnerable she is. She's a young lady. It turns out she's beautiful. But she's also a minority She's a captive in a foreign land. The only reason that she's experiencing any sense of acceptability, sociability, protection is because of externals, because of her beauty. That's what's happening. In fact, Mordecai spends her, her whole childhood, listen carefully, please, teaching her how to protect herself. I'm going to say that again. Mordecai spent her whole childhood teaching this vulnerable girl 
how to protect herself. There's nothing wrong with that. My wife and I have five children. Of course, we spent their young years trying to infuse in them ways to think about the world so that they could protect themselves. We're blessed with three beautiful granddaughters. Of course, we join their parents, our children, in teaching these young ladies, these little girls, how to grow up in a culture where they will need to know how to protect their lives. So there's nothing wrong with what Mordecai did, teaching Esther to protect herself. But what Mordecai realizes is that when circumstances shift, a tectonic shift, like an earthquake, like a hurricane that floods and destroys a city, like an attack that drops towers into rubble. When the circumstances change, Mordecai realizes first that his instruction wasn't incorrect. It was just incomplete. He had taught Esther how to protect herself. He had not yet taught her that self-protection and advocating for others were not diametrically opposed. They weren't even competing goals. That doing what was right to protect herself and protecting others were things that she could commit to. And Esther discovers this, that as Mordecai shifts his thinking, that I need to be teaching this young woman I love, not just how to protect herself, but how to care for others, how to love others, how to put herself on the line for others, how to do the hard things, how to literally put her life on the line, which would appear to be abdicating the teachings of self-protection. But to put her life on the line for someone else, he realized, I haven't taught her enough about this, and I've, I've got to. We've got to do it right now because the nation's survival depends on it. You see, in a nation that I grew up in, that was birthed in individuality, was birthed in individual rights and freedoms, was birthed in the ability to tell someone, don't tread on me. Birthed in the ability to row a boat out into the Boston Harbor in the middle of the night and unlawfully breaking the law, throw tea over into the Boston Harbor to tell people, you can't tell us what to do. That that DNA, although it has produced ultimately many, many freedoms and therefore is good, it also infected us. You see, the teaching was incomplete. It taught us to play dominoes like we can stack them up and somehow always win by knocking someone else down. And we've forgotten that the way of God was to look at the face of that domino and to look into the face of someone else and see humanity there and see God there 
and look for ways to connect, to recognize that what's on the face of my domino is also on the face of their domino. That's what's in my heart, my needs, my concerns, my griefs are also reflected in their needs, their concerns, and their griefs. Their loves are reflected in my loves. My loves are reflected in their loves. You see, the truth is, is that we now have an opportunity to show the world that we actually know how the game is played and won. And that's what Mordecai had to relearn, and that's what he had to teach Esther. And Esther makes this famous statement that now that she understands it, she says, you know, if I die, I die. Because what she understood was is that there was more to her than just protecting herself. Is this not what we have seen in the heroes of history? Throughout history, women and men of all ages, on every continent, in all cultures, were willing to step into sacrifice for the good of others, to put themselves on the line for the good of others, to go through hard things for the good of others. I want to close with a beautiful expression of this. The World Health Organization said to us this last week, we need to shift our vocabulary. We had been talking about what? Social distancing. And this is new to us. We, we have a new phrase, social distancing. And we've got to practice social distancing. We've got to get good at it. So we made little videos. We made memes. We had people explain it. We had everyone from, from uh, uh, innovative videographers in their basement telling us how to do social distancing to people from the CDC telling us how to do social distancing. But then the World Health Organization put up a yellow flag and said, whoa, 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 wait. We're using the wrong language. We don't need social distancing. We just need physical distancing. Because in reality, we discovered that social distancing, with social distancing, we can't win. We're losing. We're hurting. We're lonely. We're fearful. We're depressed. And we're alone. That somehow social distancing closed us off from each other. We couldn't meet in school. We couldn't go to the office. We couldn't go to weddings. We couldn't even go to funerals. We can't even visit our loved one in assisted living, a nursing home, or the hospital. We can't be with our loved one except under the most extreme life and death circumstances. And even then, we may be restricted. We can't even go to church together. But we named it social distancing when really all we needed was physical distancing because here's what happened. One of the reasons it was so hard to convince people to continue with social distancing is because we were physical dist because in the physical distancing and the social distancing, we were losing our connection with one another and we couldn't stand it. This is why through social distancing, people finally just were hurting. Maybe they didn't even know it. Maybe it was implicit, subconscious, but when we would see each other, what would we do? We would come together physically. We'd, we would uh, uh, high five. We would hug. We would say hello to one another. We'd, we'd, we'd say, we, we got to go to spring break. We got to go to the beach because I want to be with somebody. 
right? We've got to have a prayer meeting together. I want to be with somebody. You see, the social distancing that we were practicing was actually making physical distancing more difficult. So the World Health Organization said, just as we're upgrading everything through this process, we are needing to upgrade our medical care. We're needing to upgrade how we approach economics. We need to upgrade our vocabulary. We need to talk about physical distancing, not social distancing, because we actually need each other that much. And I want to challenge you with something. I believe that this disease of social distancing is being exposed. That for the last two decades, we have used what I'm holding in my hand. We've used our smartphones. We've used our, our, our devices as a way to social distance. We've used it as a way where we think to ourselves that we're the consumer and we consume out of this little object right here. We didn't see it. We forgot it was a phone. We forgot it was a way to connect. We forgot that we could FaceTime with somebody rather than just embedding ourselves in the news 24 hours a day or in videos or, or just kind of blindly uh, uh, watching and listening without even thinking of others. We have isolated ourselves. Our social distancing is hurting us. Now, we have to physically distance. In order to beat this disease, we've got to do it. But we can't social distance. And here's what I believe. I don't think this is the culprit. I don't think computers are the culprit. I don't think television is the culprit. I don't think that your phone is the culprit. Because social distancing started in the Garden of Eden. When humans were distanced from God and distanced from each other. And it has been plaguing us ever since. This is the root of racism. It is the root of sexism, classism. Every ism we're facing is our willingness to socially distance ourselves. And that's why when Jesus stepped into the world and played the game differently, that the people who were used to winning by stacking them up and mowing them down, Jesus disrupted everything in their lives. But for the people who relied on connection and relied on love, Jesus awakened a new day. He was like the sun coming up. That what they knew they needed all along, Jesus affirmed. This is how a younger son can come home to a loving father. It's not by the social distancing of the older brother but the love of the Father that welcomes him home, right? This is how Jesus heals the woman caught in adultery. This is how the woman at the well, alone, socially distanced, is brought back into the family of God. You see what we're talking about here? So when you think about the dominoes, there's two ways to play. One of them kills us, and the other one revives us, helps us to live beyond the moment. Let's think connection in order to cure the pandemic of hate. I want to thank you for joining us 
for this time together today. Um, some people wrote in a few questions, and I want to take a few minutes uh, just quickly to address those. And I want to say a little bit about this um, because if you will go online and you will be one of the first three to submit a question, then we will send you a free copy of Love First, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late. So you'll be able to go online, lovefirst.org, and you'll be able to find the question section, type in your question, but you'll also be able to enter uh, your address information, and we'll send you a free copy of Love First, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late. So here's a couple of questions I want us to look at today. There's actually, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it two and a half, okay? The first question, why do some people deny the impact of the coronavirus or not take it seriously? Why do some people deny the impact of the coronavirus or not take it seriously? Uh, I'd like to offer a couple of observations there that I think are pretty important, okay? Uh, first of all, this is not a binary answer because it's not a binary question. People are different. There's all kinds of reasons that people approach things in their own way. But I'd like to offer three possible uh, answers to this. The first one would be that for some, it's just a lack of information. Uh, not everyone is as informed on the virus as perhaps they could be uh, if, it's, if it's available to them. Um, a lot of times there's been information shared. People, uh, we got to remember that uh, people may think they're pretty good at medicine, but not everyone's a doctor, right? Um, one time when I spent a lengthy amount of time in a local hospital battling an infection, uh, the chief medical officer of the Emory uh, Medical System here in Atlanta came to my room, and I was so grateful to meet this wonderful man and this wonderful uh, uh, person in medicine. But he articulated something to me that surprised me. He said, you know, you need to realize, Don, that the lab coat that I'm wearing, by the end of the day, it's just covered in bacteria. And that so surprised me because I looked at him and I thought, what? You know, the lab coat looks like what? It looks sterile because it's white, it's, it's pressed. But what he was revealing to me is, Don, behind what you can see is a world of information that you may not be aware of. So I think that the reason that some people don't take it seriously is that they have uh, been given misinformation or they just lack information. So that's, I think, one response to denying it. A second one is you've always got people that are trying to take advantage of others. You've got people that make a living off of stirring up strife. You've got people that make a living off of creating uh, uh, conspiracy theories. Here's something I find fascinating, okay? I wrote this to myself in my own personal journal. Isn't it interesting how useless rage radio, blame broadcasting, and partisan politics are in the face of this virus and COVID-19, the disease which it creates? Seriously, isn't it amazing? I'm gonna read that again. Isn't it interesting how useless rage radio, blame broadcasts, and partisan politics are? Because at the end of the day, none of those are helping us solve this problem. So one of the questions I ask is, were they ever useful? Did they ever help at all? I don't believe they do. Personally, I believe that all of those were created to try, in essence, to play the domino game by crushing others rather than by connecting 
with others. If you've watched uh, our uh, government in Washington, D.C., uh, work on this stimulus bill, it can be a little embarrassing <laughs> watching them try to learn how to play dominoes again, right? Learning how to connect the dots. But at the end of the day, they are all working with one another. As difficult as it is, they're trying to figure out how to look at the face of those dominoes and look at the face of somebody else's domino and connect it. What we've got to be thinking about is how do we support that? Because supporting partisan politics, supporting Rage Radio, supporting Blame Broadcast, only continues the pandemic of hate. It only hurts the nation. Okay? But some people stir up controversy because that's how they get what they want. All right? A third group. A third group may deny the impact of the coronavirus and not take it seriously partially related to the article that I mentioned earlier in the Harvard Business Review about grief. Because if you remember, uh, one of the stages of grief is denial. It's that anticipatory grief. It is the feeling that the dominoes are falling and eventually this thing is coming for me. So a way to push back that feeling of anticipatory loss is to deny it. But it's a form of grief. So could there be some people that are just stirring up controversy in order to get votes, get money, get uh, uh, sponsors, uh, get subscribers? Of course. But thankfully, that's a pretty small group. Most people that might be denying it are probably fitting in with a group who needs more information or in with the group that may be implicitly or unconsciously struggling with grief and just doesn't know it. Okay. A second question was, why do some people panic and some people don't? Well, you know, you can imagine, again, that's not a binary answer because it's not a binary question. Uh, it can be, a panic can be rooted in a lot of things. It can be rooted in previous trauma that people have experienced. It can be rooted in family systems and social systems. It can be rooted in our implicit memory, right? And so one of the things we got to think about is there's a lot of reasons why someone might actually panic and there can be a lot of reasons why someone doesn't panic, okay? And it can be a myriad of reasons. The reason I said two and a half questions is because there was actually a third question, but it folds into the second one, and that is, well, what do I do if I meet someone that's panicking? If I'm in a conversation with someone or I meet someone that's panicking, what do I do? Well, if you're able to engage, there's a way maybe you could be of help. Uh, this week, we were blessed by a, an equipping session by Dr. Major Boglin. Now, he's one of our ministers. He's our family minister. And Dr. Boglin also is the executive director of our Genesis Center for Christian Counseling uh, here on our campus. And as Dr. Boglin was equipping us, one of the things that he stressed to us is, meet people where they are. Meet them in their pain. Don't immediately try to talk them out of their pain or, 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 or scold them or judge them for panicking. And that's corroborated, his equipping is corroborated by the article I mentioned earlier in the Harvard Business uh, uh, Journal about the way that grief is functioning. That if we meet people where they are and just say, tell me more, and just tell me more, to create a place of safe connection safety and safe 
connection, rather than trying to get them to stop panicking. Just invite them into a safe place, assure them of your connection, assure them of your concern, and rather than you talking them out of it, just ask them, tell me more, and let them release what is happening within them. If they do get to a place where they can think a little more clearly, there is actually an opportunity for them to be innovative and imaginative. Remember, fear drives us to the back of the brain. That's that reptilian, that lizard brain we read about. It's, it's what we might call, you know, what, what they call the limbic system, right? And it's back here. And back in that place of fear, there's no imagination. That's not the problem-solving part of the brain. But when you engage people in safety, and you kind of point out that, hey, these, these two dominoes can connect, right? Well, then as people feel more safe and they don't have to live in that fear, then slowly their processes can emerge forward. They can get into the neocortex, into the imaginative and creative part of the brain, and begin to see possible solutions, less fear, more connection. So a way to approach that is just to encourage people to, to share, tell me more, give them a chance to talk through it. They don't have to land at a certain place for it to satisfy you. Keep it safe. And in doing so, you'll help them move out of that old brain into the new brain, a place where maybe some innovation and imagination of connectivity can take place. Again, I want to thank you for joining us for the podcast. Again, I would ask you to please subscribe, like, and share. And join us, if you would, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock live. You can go to lovefirst.org and uh, find all the information there. Thank you again for joining us. Love first, I know. Love first, I know. Lord, take control.